Are you ready to live your best life, be stronger, and fall in love with yourself? It's possible, and it's inside you, but you need to unlock the power within. Welcome to Fearlessly Authentic with Jody Harrison Bauer. Jody used to be afraid to take risks. It took some stepping out of her comfort zone to get her there. Along with her guests and their stories, Jody will help you to live your best life ever. Now, here's your host, Jody Harrison Bauer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fearlessly Authentic. I'm your host, Jody Harrison Bauer, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of How to Live a Fearlessly Authentic Life. Because in these episodes, We, along with my wonderful guests, try to educate you as much as we can, empower you, and inspire you so you can go off into the world and live a fearlessly authentic life. So thank you again for joining me. And today, my guest is Dr. Nina Savelle Rocklin. And I am so excited to share all of your knowledge to help other people. So welcome, Nina. Thank you. It is great to be here. I really appreciate it. I know you are very, very busy. And, you know, one of the things that people really, really um, have a hard time with, you know, we're going to be talking about why food isn't an addiction. We're going to get into that. But people, many people feel that it is. So it's really not what you're eating. It's about what's eating at you or what's eating you. And when I think about all the things that people refer to as addictions, you know, whether it's alcohol, drugs, porn, gambling, shopping, um, you know, as you say in your book, the binge cure, which I urge you all to pick up. Uh, where is it? Yes, it's right here. I have mine right here and right here. And, you know, the one thing we can't escape is food because it's everywhere. So what brought you to write this book and really delve so deep into relationships and food? Well, what brought me to write the book was my own experience, which started when I was five years old. And I seemingly randomly looked down at my thighs and decided they were too big. And by the way, my parents were like ex-hippie college professors. We weren't watching TV. We didn't have magazines, maybe Newsweek magazine. Like there were, there were no media influences that would make me think that I, as a five-year-old, was comparing my body to someone else. Um, but this is where it started. And then by the time I was a teenager, I was what I call the poster child for eating disorders. You know, every journal of every you know, every year, every page of every journal of that time was filled with numbers. It was, you know, what I ate, what I didn't eat, how many calories I burned, how many fat grams, how many carbs, blah, blah, blah. When I went hiking with friends, I wasn't like, oh, it's such a beautiful day. I'm having so so much fun. It was, okay, calculating. It's been this long. How many calories have I burned? You know, am I going to lose weight tomorrow or gain it? And I was just in this cycle of of eating disorder hell. And I would go from restricting to binging and purging to binging to restricting to binging and purging to binging. And it was this seemingly never ending cycle that I thought I would never get out of. And finally, in college, I went to therapy, but I went for anxiety 
because I was too embarrassed to talk about my food stuff. So my therapist had no idea that she was, in fact, talking to the poster child for eating disorders because uh, we talked about everything but food. We talked about my perfectionism. We talked about um, stuff with my parents, what I wanted to do with with my future. We talked about guys, everything but food. And by the time I left therapy, all my eating disorders were gone for good. Because and people say, How? yeah, because you were yeah. focusing on the other things. I was focusing on why I was eating. I, the, the point was like food was a solution to the problem instead of the problem. And so when I changed the way that I related to myself, everything with food changed. And why at age five did I suddenly decide that my legs were fat when they were not? I was totally, perfectly normal, even slightly skinny kid. Well, I was, um, as I just said, my parents were ex-hippie college professors and I was sort of more energetic and rambunctious and I was a five-year-old, right? And they were always saying, hey, you, you need to be quiet or you're too loud or you need to calm down or you're too much was the message. And so for my five-year-old mind, too much meant literally physically too much. And there was some idea that if I became smaller, I would not be too much. And therefore I would be more lovable or more like, more likable, whatever it was that I was after at that point. So all of this helped me realize I want to help other people who are struggling. And that's why I became a therapist and then a psychoanalyst specializing in this so that I can help other people free themselves from the ideas about themselves that keep them feeling bad and feeling as if there's something wrong with them and help liberate them. Right. Right. It's crazy. And I just remembered as you just introduced yourself, I forgot to read your bio. So I apologize for doing that. Um, I'm going to stop right here for a second because I do want to read your bio to our audience. So I apologize. I was just so excited to get into the meat and potatoes of everything. Um, I completely um, forgot. So I want to reintroduce Dr. Nina here very quickly because she has a lot of credentials. She's just not somebody I just brought on to the show. So let me start from the beginning. Dr. Nina Savelle Rocklin is a psychoanalyst, author, and radio host specializing in eating disorders with an emphasis on binge eating disorder. Internationally recognized for her unique perspective in the field of eating psychology, she is the author of The Binge Cure, Seven Steps to Outsmart Emotional Eating and Food for Thought, Perspectives, Perspectives on Eating Disorders, and co-editor of Beyond the Primal Addiction. Her YouTube series, Break Free from Binging, helps viewers lose weight without counting calories, carbs, or fat grams. She's also the host of the Dr. Nina Show program on LA Talk Radio. So Nina, I apologize that I did not read that before we started talking, but again, I was very excited to get right into it. So no worries. It's crazy to think, and I'm sure even right now, crazy to think that when you were five years old, you you had these feelings. You just wanted to become smaller. So it's so important the words that we use as parents. It's so important the words that we use as parents, and it's so important the words that we use to ourselves because thoughts, ideas, beliefs create feelings, create behaviors. So if you're, for example, mean to yourself and you're saying mean things like, 
oh, you're worthless or you're fat or you're, you're, you know, you're not good enough or, you know, who do you think you are? Whatever it is, the mean things that people say to each other or and themselves, they're going to feel terrible. And when you feel terrible, you are vulnerable to using food or actually anything else, but for our purposes today, mm-hmm. using food for comfort, distraction to cope. And that's why the way that we speak about ourselves, the way we speak to ourselves is so vitally important. There's a great quote, um, and it, it, it's, if you spoke to your friends the way you speak to your body, you'd have no friends left. You, you talk about no. that a lot in your book, and that really resonated with me because when I do hear my clients or other people that I know that are struggling with their weight and, you know, I, I love that you don't count calories or grams or anything like that because it's so restrictive and it's, it's the yo-yo dieting, but it's so true. You know, so many people use I'm being bad or I was good and you wouldn't talk to your friend that way. And I love that perspective because it's, it's really important to be kind to yourself and speak to yourself the same way you would be as a loving friend. And so many people don't do that. So many people speak to themselves in the worst, most hideous, awful way. I used to have a support group that met in person and we would come in and, and, and someone would say, oh, you know, I ate like an entire pizza. And the other people in the group would be like, oh, I'm sure that there was a reason for it and what was going on and what, you know, what emptiness were you feeling? And they would be all so supportive. But then they would say of themselves, I have no control. I have no willpower. There's something wrong with me. I'm so ugly. I'm so awful. I'm so this or that. So if only they could treat themselves the way they treated other people in that support group, as I was always telling them, imagine when you speak to yourself, the way you speak to others, how much different you're going to feel in your own life. When you feel better, when you feel good, when you give yourself comfort words, you don't need comfort food. Right. So when you were struggling as through school and you had the eating disorder, did you, when you can recall that time, did you use those awful words to yourself? Yes. I was really hard on myself. I, I, I couldn't bear to make a mistake. If I tripped over a word as I've you know, already done today because that's what normal people do when they're talking. I would think, oh my God, I made a mistake. This is terrible. You know, and I would then I would start observing myself as I spoke and I didn't want to speak in class. And I I I had a, a brother who went got a, like a full ride to Harvard and I, I never felt like I was smart enough because I didn't get perfect scores on my SATs. So I had this terrible sense of imposter syndrome. Um, and I just never felt good enough, whatever good enough was. Right. And I think we all struggle with that uh, feeling good enough. Where do we need to be? And again, it goes back to, you know, we're both parents. So we know that we need to choose our words wisely. And sometimes with the first child, if we're lucky enough to have a second one, (laughs) you know, we kind of practice on that first one, right? Like we make all the mistakes with that first one. And then when the second one comes, we're like, okay, we need to reel this back and change maybe our language. Because as you point out in the book, so often it's the language that we use as parents. So your parents use those words, you know, you're, you're too noisy. You're too rambunctious. Like, you know, go in your room and make yourself smaller. So it's um, really just 
crazy to think that how important the words are. And you also mentioned in your book, the phrase sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And you, you disagree with that. Absolutely. Bones can heal. Words can leave, uh, you know, wounds that never heal. And, and, you know, I'm just thinking about someone who like, she was really hardworking and she, she, she would get straight A's, but she got an A minus. Oh, that was the end of the world. And so, of course, she internalized that and then was unable to ever feel good about herself because she was looking at, well, where's the problem? Where's she not good enough? Mm-hmm. And then couldn't relate to other people because she thought that they would be looking at her through the same rigid gaze and turned to food for comfort because food is reliable, available, and predictable, whereas people can be unreliable, unavailable, and unpredictable. I do want to say something about connecting the past and and how parents treat us. Mm -hmm. I don't want to blame parents. I think parents do the best that they can given their situation, only sometimes their best does hurt their kids. And so my work is not about pointing a finger and saying it's their fault. It's their fault. It's about saying, okay, this is what happened. This is what you internalized. This is how you learned to relate to yourself and therefore to food. And let's, you know, unlearn that and learn a different way. I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't want to point any fingers also. We all as parents do the best that we can. So I want to go to the research that you did in um, food triggers. So I really love that you talk about the soft foods, the crunchy foods, the carbohydrates. So can you explain that to our audience? Yes. I started noticing that when people would come in and they'd say, oh, I just, you know, I ate a whole pint or gallon of ice cream, that what they were really needing when they were going to ice cream was they needed comfort. And I noticed that when they would go for chips and they'd come in and they'd say, oh, I just started eating Doritos and I ate the whole bag of family-sized Doritos, I suck. Well, what they really were feeling before they went to the Doritos or the pretzels or the whatever it was with a crunch, they were angry and they didn't know how to express their anger. And I noticed that when people were eating bulky foods, whether it was pizza or pasta or muffins or cakes or whatever that fill a void, like take up space within you, there was some void in their life. And so I created my food mood formula because a lot of times people are so quick to go to food to feel better. They don't even know they're triggered by something that's going on. And so the food mood formula helps you figure out what is going on within you, even if you're out of touch with it. And I can give an example that I, I, I talk about in the book because it, yes. you know, it might be better to, to say what I mean. So um, I had this patient, Jenna, and she came in and she told me that uh, she did not have an emotional eating problem, that she was in fact addicted to ice cream. She was a sugar addict and she was addicted to ice cream and that she could prove it. So I said, hmm, okay, okay. <laughs> all right, let's hear it. I don't believe in sugar addiction, as you know. And so she said that the night before she had this great day at work, everything was fine. Nothing was bothering her. But all of a sudden, Ben and Jerry's was calling her name. 
And, and she said, I, I'm addicted to Chunky Monkey. Face it. <laughs> so I said, well, what were you watching before on TV, right before Ben and Jerry started calling for you? She said, well, her favorite show, Charmed. It was her guilty pleasure. Nothing was bothering her. See, it's nothing to do with emotional eating. Come on, Dr. Nina. She's a food addict. What was the show about? I asked. She said, oh, well, it's when the, the devil comes down and the sisters start fighting and everything gets really nasty and awful and contentious. And that's when she stopped. She looked at me. I looked at her because we both had the same thought, which was, aha, watching that show triggered her own sister stuff, which she had a very difficult, painful, awful relationship with her sister. Mm -hmm. And before it could reach conscious awareness that she was being triggered, boom, right to ice cream. So if we had been like, well, when ice cream starts calling your name, here's what you do, like brush your teeth or take a walk, which by the way, does not work. <laughs> does not work. <laughs> we had to, no, that is not the answer. The answer is, okay, what is going on? The, what was the problem? The problem was not only the sister issue, but her inability to tolerate processing those feelings, even identifying it. And so the food mood formula helps you figure out, well, what's going on and what is it that you really need? So if you're turning to ice cream or anything creamy, you need comfort. How do you comfort someone else with words? If you are eating something filling, what are the voids in your life? Let's look at those. Let's figure out what they are. Let's face them and fill them. So I, and, I find that all really so fascinating. You were going to go on to the crunchy food. Crunchy is, if, if crunchy is your thing, then you got to express your anger in a way without turning it against yourself. So when all of these restaurants come about and they were all about comfort food, how do you, you know, we've, I've got one in my town and I know that when I don't feel well, I usually go for bread. You know, that's my, I'm not a soft yogurt, ice cream, pudding, very rarely a crunchy girl either. I'm a bread girl. I'm a pizza girl. You know, when I used to eat muffins 30 years ago, I was a muffin girl. But those things, and I find that when I don't feel well or when my children didn't feel well, it was those comfort foods. Is that where that all comes from, comfort foods? Well, I think that that's often the food that we're given as children, you know, mac and cheese and all of that. And we associate it with warm, happy memories of our childhood, if we indeed had that. <laughs> um, but I should also say that this is not just about like if you have ice cream for dessert or you eat pizza for dinner. This is about when you're sort of binging or emotionally eating or compulsively eating those foods in order to make you feel better. We all sometimes have those comfort foods. There's nothing wrong with any kind of foods. It's more like if you're using them to resolve something emotional, that's what you want to look at or something internal. Can we, can you define what binge eating is? Oh, that is a great question because some people will say they, they, they binged on cookies when they had four cookies. Right. And some people will say they binged on cookies when they had 40 cookies. Right. And right. So, so binging is when you're eating a, a great deal of food, much more than anyone would normally eat, usually in a very quick 
period of time and there's a compulsive quality to it and it and it it feels terrible like like the experience of it feels like it's compulsive you can't stop and it is not enjoyable at all and it is done you know three times a week to be a you know a, a diagnosable criteria for a certain amount of time but binging is when you're using food in a almost desperate way to resolve something emotional as opposed to overeating which we all overeat sometimes which is just you ate too much of whatever and you you say oh I ate too much of whatever when people binge they 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 feel shame people who overeat say oh i feel a little guilty i ate too much of that people who binge say oh there's something wrong with me they feel shame about what they're doing and it's often secret and hidden and they would be mortified if anyone knew what they were doing okay so closet eaters maybe i don't mean to you know um, put a, t- a tag on everybody but I, I'm just thinking about people that I know and when I was growing up and so on. And so there is that feeling of shame afterwards. Is that's that's probably the biggest underlying yes. factor there is there's shame to it. And that's when they come to see somebody like you because they do want to cure the binging. Exactly. And the cure is not to look at what you're eating, it's to look at what's eating at you. It's not what you're eating that is the problem. It's why. And finding out, well, what is, what's causing you to, to turn to food and finding new ways of relating to yourself, healing the past, being differently to yourself, being that friend, turning that critic into a friend is, it sounds so simple, but it's very difficult. It's very complicated, but it's very doable. And once you, once you know what it is you're fighting, you can fight. When you think you're fighting food, you're going to lose the battle every time. But when you realize, oh, no, I'm fighting perfectionism. I'm fighting these ideas I have about myself. I'm fighting some, some ghosts of the past. Food is the solution, not the problem. Don't you think it's hard for people to really step back all by themselves and recognize that? rather than blaming it on food? It's impossible because we also have a $60 billion diet industry that says, hey, if you just eat this and not that, you're going to have the body of your dreams. And when you have the body of your dreams, then you're going to have the life of your dreams. And that is pretty irresistible. This idea that you can change who you are by changing your body um, is it's, it's a grand illusion and it keeps people stuck in that. And also to, more to the point of your question, you can't have an, an objective view of your subjective experience. Mm-hmm. If you're in it, you can't point. simultaneously see what you're doing. Right. And that's, and that's where I come in. And that's you know why it's my privilege and my honor to help people really be able to see things from a different perspective and to be curious, not critical mm-hmm. and make changes about um, the way that they relate to themselves, which has ripple effects in their life, including with food. So if you had to tell somebody right now who's listening, where, where can they get help? If they recognize the fact that they're binging three, four times a week, they can reach out to you and we'll leave, we'll have all that information at the end of the show. Um, but what could they do right now? Could, is there something, is 
is there anything that you could suggest to them? Writing things down? I don't know. Well, I, I would suggest to them that if they think there's something wrong with them, if they think that they have no willpower, if they think that they have no control, no, they have a diagnosable, treatable eating disorder. Um, uh, and a lot of people think that they have no willpower. Actually, they have an eating disorder. Binge eating disorder is the most prevalent eating disorder there is. Many more people have binge eating disorder and they don't realize it than have anorexia and bulimia combined. And so they can start with going to um, the National Eating Disorders Association, uh, um, ANAD, anorexia nervosa and associated disorders, places like that, eating disorder, hope. These are all places where they can get referrals and help and they can get the help that they need because it is treatable. There is hope. There is hope. I love that, that there is hope because I am sure the people that are listening or somebody who may share this with a friend or a loved one, it's that there is, there is hope and there is help as long as you go and you take action towards these things, because it's an ever ending cycle. And the people that I see living in this life are miserable. They're unhappy and they do, they blame it. They do blame it on the food. So um, it's, that's very, very helpful. We're going to be taking a break in a few minutes, but I wanted to ask you if we can start touching upon this. Why is nighttime eating such a problem for people? Well, it is a problem because that is when people are alone with themselves. And if you don't know how to be with yourself, nighttime is really hard because during the day, we're all busy. We're doing things. We're working. We're taking care of kids. We're whatever it is. We're, we're, we're busy, usually doing something. And when you're doing something, you're focused on that. At night is when that stops. And if you can't be with yourself, you're going to use food to distract from yourself. Okay. I want to get more into that when we um, come back from the break. So hang in there, everybody. We'll be back in a few minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. On Fearlessly Authentic, Jody talks about mental and physical well-being, and the key to both starts with proper nutrition. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan was created to help your body feel better. Whether your goal is to lose weight, gain muscle, or just feel lighter and more energetic, Following this meal plan can help you get there. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan is a 21-day plan to help you learn the most important things about the food we eat and what foods are right for you based on your goals and activity level. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan is a real plan for real life. This is not a diet, but a change in lifestyle. 
The plan is simple and easy for you to follow. In the 21-day plan, you will receive meal ideas, snack ideas, a grocery list, and a 21-day journal crucial to your success with inspirational quotes to keep you motivated and keep track of your progress. The key to success is commitment, consistency, and willpower. Be fearless and trust the journey. Go to JodyFit.com to purchase the JodyFit meal plan now and use the promo code PODCAST to get 25% off. You need to live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Our listeners have told us that they want to be motivated, hear about success stories, and positive encouragement around the clock. And we've responded to you. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's here at voiceamericaempowerment.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Fearlessly Authentic with Jody Harrison Bauer. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments you may have. Send an email to info at jodyharrisonbauer.com. That's info at jodyharrisonbauer.com. Now, back to Fearlessly Authentic. Welcome back, everybody. I am here with my wonderful guest, Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland, who is talking about how food affects you, the relationships that we have with food. And it's not about what you're eating, but it's about what's eating at you. So welcome back, Dr. Nina. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. Before the break, we started talking about um, why so many people struggle in the evening. You know, they're, they they feel like they're in, in, let's just use the word in control. Is that okay? In control of how the day is going, what they're eating, they feel good. And then they have their dinner and then it's 8, 30, 9 o'clock and they start walking into the kitchen. Why is that a problem for so many people? Because they don't know how to be with themselves, meaning they don't know how to tolerate certain feelings they may have. They may, for example, we live in a world that says don't have feelings, right? If you are, if you, if you get mad, you've got an anger management problem. You need to go to anger management class. Like there's something wrong with you. If you're sad, you are depressed. Now, some people are depressed, but not everybody with a sad feeling. That's part of being human needs to take an antidepressant. Or if you're anxious, take a pill for that too. We live in a society that says feelings are scary. Do not feel them. And so when we're not busy, that's when we might start to think about things or feel things. And if we don't know how to be with that, if we don't know how to even recognize the existence of those feelings and that much less kind of express them or, or work through them, then we're going to try to avoid them. And food does the trick. It puts you in that, um, one of my patients calls it the dead zone. Other people call it the numb zone or, you know, the, the zone. You're not, you're not really feeling anything when you're binging or, or stress eating or whatever it is. You're not feeling the stress if you're eating. Because and the it's whole distracting you. It's a distraction. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and so at night, those feelings are more available. Um, and also you're able to be more with yourself. And that's when people start thinking about their, their day or their lives or their futures or whatever. And they start, they start having scary thoughts like, you know, uh, what, I'm trying to think of what someone said to me recently at night. And she just said, like she would, she would think, oh, you know, you're never going to, you're never going to change. Now, note, you're never going to change. You're never going to be happy. It's always going to be this way. Now, notice what she's doing. She's talking to herself, first of all, in the second person. She's calling, she's saying you're, she's not saying I'm always going to feel this way. She's saying you're always going to feel this way. And she's creating a, a horrible, hopeless future in her mind of how awful things are always going to be and that's unbearable and so she goes and eats brownies because the 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 empty horror of the rest of her life feeling as it does now is too much for her so to really look at how you talk to yourself and that second person voice is something that i hear a lot people talk to themselves in the second person they'll say you have no willpower you're never going to fill in the blank and i'll say well, wait a minute say that again but say it from I, say it from a first person place. And often they can't do it because it feels mean. Yes, yes. It's I, How can somebody flip it like that? I, I know that when I'm feeling down on myself or not feeling at my best, um, I don't know if I, I refer to myself in the second person, but if I do, now that I'm aware of it, I'll, I'll, I'll switch it. And it does. It's like what we said before, you wouldn't talk to a friend like that. So if somebody's talking to themselves like that at night, all alone, or their family's asleep, whatever, how can they flip it? First, by being aware of it. And if you're using that mean second person voice, which it's easy to talk to yourself that way because it's distant language, um, just switch it. Just go to I. If you're saying to yourself, you, you know, you're, you suck. You're, you're, you're terrible. <laughs> you're fat. I mean, that's what some people say to themselves. Like, oh, you're so fat. First, just say I. And, right. and then say, well, would I, what would I say to someone else? Right. What would I say to my sister or my best friend or my kid or anyone I care about? Right. Um, if, if that person felt bad about themselves, would I say, yeah you're pretty horrible or would, would I say something different and start talking to yourself as you do to others. Um, the other, the other thing to be aware of is the, your tone. Now I had one patient once who came in and she said, you know, I tried that talking to yourself thing and it did not work. I said, well, why not? She said, well, I told myself, you know, all this stuff and I didn't feel any different. So I asked her to tell me exactly in the way that she spoke to herself, what she said and how she, how did she say it? And she said something along the lines of uh, like, uh, you're all right. It'll be okay. It's not your fault. Right. And no I said, well, of whatsoever. course you didn't no feel heart. better. Like, right. like, so I, I, you know, I, I said, you could say the same words. You're okay. It's going to be Okay. It's not your fault. And it feels totally different. So watch the tone. Watch I the think, tone. I think that's a great idea, a great tip to give somebody who's struggling at home right now 
to switch that language. It is all about the language, you know, from when we were talking about growing up and the language your parents use, again, not dissing parents because we're all doing the best job that we can, but but that brings us into adulthood and how we regard ourselves. So if we could start, it's changing. It's always changing that language, isn't it, Nina? And we learn that language. But we we treat ourselves often the way we are treated. And there, well, there are two ways that people uh, learn to treat themselves in a mean way. One is when people are actually mean to them. You know, when you have other people saying, oh, you're whether it's parents or a teacher or a sibling or something. And people are saying, oh, you're you're this and you're that. And, you know, saying mean things. And then people internalize that. The other way that they learn to treat themselves in a mean way is when nobody's talking to them, when there's this sort of absence and to create a boundary and a structure, they often create the most harsh expectations possible. And so those are the two ways that people create this, this harsh relationship with themselves. And then you end up wanting to go to the kitchen to, 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 to just get away from your own mean voice. Right. And these are all the triggers. These are all the food triggers, right? These are the well, the food triggers. Yeah, we think that. So there, people think they're being triggered by food, and they'll say, "I was triggered," like like chunky monkey person, right? Jenna, she said, "Oh, the freezer, right? It's it's (laughs) I'm being triggered by ice cream." No, no, she was not being triggered by ice cream. She was being triggered by watching the show. So the real trigger was the uncomfortable, sad, angry feelings that she felt thinking about her own sister, but she couldn't even consciously get there. She went right to ice cream. And so you've got to back up and realize, well, what what really is the trigger? There's something about this situation that's percolating something within me. It's activating something. I got to take a look at it and respond to it rather than abandon myself by going to food. And by the way, these are probably a lot of people that you're discussing um, that everybody knows somebody like this that has yo-yo dieted, has counted calories, fat grams, everything, everything to lose weight and then gain the weight plus another five pounds. We all know that that is how it works, which is why counting calories and being restrictive just doesn't work. Yes, that diet binge cycle. It There are two reasons why people binge. One is what we've been discussing, which is something is going on internally and they're using food to express it. And it's more than emotions, I should say. Like some people are in emotional pain and they'll eat so much that they're in physical pain. They're unconsciously converting emotional pain to physical pain. So things like that. So there's that dimension of it. And then there's the not eating enough leads to binging. And when, and the other thing about dieting is it's always about deprivation on some level and deprivation or the anticipation of deprivation makes you want to have that thing you can't have. So if you say, well, I can't have, mm, you know, cookies until I lose X pounds, what are you going to want? Cookies. And are you going to have a bunch of cookies now because you anticipate you're not going to have any cookies for the next weeks or months? Yes, you are. And that's going to set you up for that, that cycle. 
and and it's just it's just terrible. It just keeps people in a toxic relationship to themselves and food. I agree. You know, I I competed in fitness shows for ten years. So for ten years, um, every um, I would say three times a year, I would put myself on a very restrictive diet because I needed to get super lean. You know, as far as weight loss, it was maybe five pounds, but it was reducing my body fat. And it was then restricting myself, obviously, from many different foods. But but I was always very healthy in that I had my good fats and so on. But still, no doubt, it was restrictive and not something that anybody should do. That's it, it's You have to have that right mindset. However, for the younger girls that did compete, I was older. I was in my late 40s, so I, I had a leg up as far as life experiences go. Uh, but for the younger girls that were working out and, and doing the shows in their 20s, they really, really struggled. Once they were let loose of that those restrictions, it's exactly what you're talking about, Nina. They went to the cookies. They went to the candy. And they then they had to start to create a new relationship with food because they just felt like, well, I've been so restricted for three or four years or five years, how many years it was, or just even 12 weeks. I'm going hog wild on these cookies because I'm going to be able to eat. And then they're miserable. They feel that shame and they spiral out of control. They don't know how to pull it back because all they do is compare what they look like now, which is usually pretty normal and healthy to what they used to look like on stage. And as I tell my my clients who've competed in shows, that's why we take all the pictures that day or for a few days afterwards, because you cannot maintain that. It's not sustainable. So I've seen it right. in the fitness industry. And it, and and there's something else which which I think it does particularly to women, but also to men, because a lot of men struggle with this as well, right. um, it makes you it it makes you think of yourself as only your body, and which is not to say that you can't not. What am I trying to say? It's okay to want to lose weight. I'm 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 not one of those like hey accept yourself wherever you are. It's okay to want to lose weight, but it's also important to love yourself as you are changing your body. Yes, yes. and there's this idea that you're only lovable or good if your body is a certain way, and if you if if you don't look that way that you think you should look or did look, then you've lost your value. And this yeah. is a very dangerous attitude as far as our our self-esteem and our sense of self. Yes, yes, I've, I've, I've seen it. And I'm glad you brought up men because we've referred to a few women in these, in these um, case studies that you have, but I know that you did, you know, you do see men. And tell me about the men's mentality versus maybe a woman, if you could do it that black and white, but I'm not sure. It's a good question. And the answer is that human beings basically have the same way of relating to themselves, you know, whatever their gender Mm -hmm. men, um, men may want to, you know, lose weight and don't have, they don't want the dad bod or they, you know, they want to be more fit, but ultimately this isn't even about weight. This Mm -hmm. is about relationship to self and not, and not being able to be with yourself in a way that is, um, nurturing 
and supportive and encouraging, whether you're a man or a woman, if you're, if you're a jerk to yourself, uh, then you're going to feel terrible and food's going to make you feel better. And the whole idea is whatever your gender is, be kind to yourself, up, lift yourself up instead of tearing yourself down. And you will see that things with food will change. And I also wanted to ask you about, you know, we talk about, you just mentioned weight loss, but people still struggle with weight gain. And, you know, I've mentioned to you that my husband is tall and thin, and he has the hardest time keeping weight on just because genetically that is how he's, he's built. You know, he's just constantly trying to keep up and you know, eat the right foods and, and get his workouts in. Um, but if, if he's not on top of, you know, feeding himself properly, he loses the weight. So that's a struggle too, that I, that some people are not sympathetic towards at all. They're like, Oh, be quiet. You're a skinny person. You have nothing, but, but the struggle's real, even for people trying to keep on the weight. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, I wish that we could have a society in which we didn't have just one way of being as the way to be, right. because no matter what, very few people, very few guys are like those big buff, you know, <laughs> guys with all muscular and all of that without steroids. Right. And very few women are six feet tall and weigh a hundred pounds. I mean, so, so we, we need to create a different standard of d- diversity, which we are doing, but also not think that we are going to be better or feel better about ourselves if we're at a different weight, because if you don't deal with what, what is eating at you, that's still going to bother you. Something else is going to be, uh, take its place. If, if you like say, gastric bypass surgery. I have a lot of people who've lost 100, 150, 200 pounds, lost all the weight, and then they started gaining it back again because they never dealt with their relationship to themselves. So glad you brought that up. That is so true. I've seen it happen. And it's the, the, whole, the whole journey is so emotional. And I feel for, for people that have gone through that surgery, spent the time and the money recovering, and because they didn't deal with the root of the problem and thought it was food, then they go back to the starting point. And, you know, when I've helped men and women lose weight, gain weight, feel stronger in their body, the journey is very emotional. And I think that when people come to see somebody like you, who's really going to dig deep and get to the root of the problem, they have to understand that they need to be open with their feelings right? And, and that's got to be hard. Have you found that, that people just don't want to open up? They just think it's the food, right? Yes. And I, I once had um, someone who, this was years ago, and she, she looked at me and she said, wait, are you telling me that my problem with food has something to do with what's in my head? And I said, and your heart. And she said, how dare you? How dare you? She said, I am a food addict. And she got up and she walked out. Wow. <laughs> I, so yes, it is hard work. It is hard work to look inward. And I particularly like the analogy of the weed and the root because a, a weed is like going on a diet it's, or, or doing something about the behavior. It's like picking a weed and expecting it to never grow back. You cannot see the root, but it is there. 
just like we have hidden unconscious motivations, we don't, it's hidden from us. It's in our unconscious, I love but that. it I, yeah, creates. I was, I was thinking about that when I was walking my dog and I was looking at all the flowers. I was looking at all the weeds and I was thinking about what you said in your book about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and once you do do that emotional gardening and you dig out that weed, it's gone for good. And, and that's why, yes, it is, it is a lot harder to, to, to look inward, to dig deep and to feel things you don't want to feel and think things you don't want to think. But ultimately that brings you liberation. It's harder in the short run, but in the long run, it is a lot harder to go on diet after diet, after diet, after diet, and to feel miserable and never good enough and be in this toxic relationship with yourself and food. That is misery. And it doesn't have to be that way. Yes. I'm glad you said that. What are some of the steps to stop emotional eating? Well, the first thing is get rid of your scale because a piece of metal and plastic cannot measure your true value. And too many people will be like, I had, I woke up and I felt great. And then I got on the scale and, oh, so, and then, so then I went and ate, you know, two burritos, but it, it just, or even if they didn't eat the two burritos, they just, they felt bad. So get rid of the scale, first of all, and then just really get more curious about why you are doing what you are doing. Be a detective. I like to say I'm a detective of the mind. And I, I team up with my patients and we investigate why they are doing what they are doing. And when we find the clues, because we're detectives, detectives don't look at clues and go, that's a weird clue. Detectives look at clues and say, oh, very interesting. Hmm. Be a detective of your own life, of your own mind, of your own heart, and use some of the things that I've talked about today. What's going on with me? Be curious, not critical. What's going on with me? Why do I want that? What do I really need? What would I say to a friend in this situation? And practice really does make progress because when you have a different view of, hey, I'm not going to measure myself by what I weigh. And I'm not going to focus on food as the problem. I'm going to look at what problem is this resolving for me. You really get to know yourself a lot better. And when you get to know yourself, you know, you treat yourself better. Right. And along those lines, I'm sure that you educate people with not counting the calories, staying away from certain foods, even though we don't want to dig deep and get into the whole food group because we want to deal with the emotional problem that's attached to the distraction of food. But we still need to recognize what foods are good for you. Do you talk about that? I really don't talk about foods because most people know what foods are good for them. They have been on every diet in the world. They They know the calorie count of anything possible. They know what to eat and they know what not to eat. It's not about um, educating them about health. It's about helping them realize that whatever they're doing is purposeful, that they're, they're, that they're doing something for a reason. And when they can figure out what that reason is, they will, and like themselves better, they will make healthier choices and also getting rid of deprivation. I once, I think really quickly, um, I once had someone come to me and she said, you got to help me. And every 
time she left work, she would go to the drive through and get a vanilla milkshake. And she said, you, you got to help me. I, I've got to stop. I'm gaining weight like crazy. What, what do I do? What do I do? So I said, okay, here's what you're going to do between now and when I see you next. Every day after work, I want you to get a vanilla milkshake. And she, she's like, no, no, you don't. What? No, you don't understand. I, I don't want to eat them. And I said, let's just give this a try. Well, by day four, she called me and she said, I can't stand these vanilla milkshakes. I, I don't it. want them anymore. So taking away that deprivation and that anticipation of deprivation will, will really be transformative. Thank you. That's so helpful. That's really, really helpful. How can someone reach you? They can go to my website, Dr. Nina Inc., D-R-N-I-N-A-I-N-C, drninainc.com. And they can they can find my 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 blog, my book, my radio show, or they can go on LA Talk Radio um, or on Apple Podcasts if you want to listen to my show. Uh, they can or they could just Google me and find me because I'm everywhere. You're everywhere. Okay, yes. thank you. And my last question for you is what does living a fearlessly authentic life mean to you? Ooh, I know I didn't tell you I was going to ask. You that. did not tell me that. Um, it means, it means, it means being afraid and doing it anyway. Like to me, fearlessness is not the absence of fear. It's to say, you know what? I, I, I'm scared to do this and I can do it. And, oh. and to just be true to, to just be true to oneself. It's going to make me cry. That's I I like that. Uh, Not taking away the fear. Really. It's just sort of embracing it. And yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. And thank you everybody for listening. And uh, I will see you next week. So thank you so much. Bye-bye everybody. Thank you for tuning in this week to Fearlessly Authentic. Please listen again next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition with your host, Jody Harrison Bauer, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and unlock the keys to a more powerful you.